You're listening to the Sexual Wellness Sessions with Kate Moyle. Today's conversation is brought to you by Furley, the sexual wellness app empowering women and non-binary folk to overcome sexual difficulties, which can range from lack of libido to inability to orgasm or simply low body confidence. Furley do this by equipping people with science-based tools and techniques that help them to feel better in their bodies and their beds. The app is available on iOS and Android, and you can download it today and start your journey to a healthier, confident, and more pleasurable life. I have the privilege of working with Furley as their resident advisor, and I truly believe that their app has the ability to be transformative for female sexual wellness. My guest today is the incredible Dr. Karen Gurney, who is the author of one of my favourite modern sexuality books, Mind the Gap. Karen is a clinical psychologist, she's a sexologist, and someone I'm incredibly proud to work alongside in this field. And she just does amazing work for normalising the conversation around sex, something that I'm incredibly passionate about. Our conversation today is all about rethinking our ideas around desire. And Karen, I guess I wanted to kick this conversation off by asking you how you would define desire. What an introduction, though. Thanks, Kate. It's lovely to be here with you. And what an introduction. I'm, I'm, I'm blushing. <laughs> um, <laughs> great. So let's get started. Um, oh, it's such a great question, that, isn't it? What would we consider to be the definition of desire? And I think um, one of the ways in which I would construct desire and it's certainly something that is a less often way of talking about desire in popular society but it's quite a useful way to look at it is that desire is more like a a motivation than it is a, a kind of a physical urge and I think that's quite a useful way to look at desire because we we often hear about in our society that there is an amount of desire that we should all just have. You know, there's this libido that is existing within us all and that it operates like a drive, like hunger or thirst. And it's something that all humans are compelled to have, this this desire, this sex drive, this libido. And we actually know from research, as, as you and I know, that that's not actually the case and that's not how desire works at all. But the desire is more like the motivation to engage in something sexually because we'll get something good out of it, whether that's a sexual good thing or whether it's a non-sexual good thing, and because it's rewarding and because the context is right. And I think actually when we start to look at desire that way, it really unpacks what is quite an elusive for some people and kind of difficult to grab hold of topic. And... I was interested in hearing you speak then because what I was hearing you say is we've always traditionally or historically thought about it like a fixed concept, like a kind of fixed idea, or you said like we all have a set amount. And yes. for me, definitely in my work, and I'm, I'm sure you see the same, that's like the opposite of why what I think it exists as, as a concept. Absolutely, yeah. And it's it's always interesting, isn't it? Um, you know, I guess as, as therapists, we're quite intrigued by how people use language because language obviously constructs our reality and I'm always fascinated by how people talk about desire you know if you kind of talk to friends or if you talk you hear people over overhear people talking in the street 
they often say things like, oh, I've got a really low sex drive, or that person has a really high sex drive. And it isn't actually possible for somebody to have a fixed amount of sex drive that stays with them over the course of their life, as you say, that it's something that, yes, we all have different relationships to sex, and some of us are more interested in sex and more motivated in sex than others. And that might remain fairly static, although it also might change depending on our life experiences. But the actual amount of sex drive, desire that people have is so context specific that it can't be fixed. It absolutely has to go up and go down. And we see that very much in the early stages of relationships, don't we? When people feel that they have more desire when they're newly with someone or more desire when they're single. And we see very much that that context of something being new is really good for desire. Um, but it, and I often feel that that kind of that language that we sometimes use is a, a little bit of a prison for our sex lives, actually. Because once we start to define ourselves as someone who doesn't have, you know, I don't, I'm, I'm somebody with a low libido, I'm somebody with a low sex drive, we start, start um, to kind of confine ourselves to not look for opportunities to how our desire might be um, increased if we want it to be. Um, which yeah. can make, yeah. I suppose we see ourselves through that lens or we get stuck in that perspective. Absolutely, yeah. And it can it can really um, then start to feel like a problem, can't it? I guess we, you know, we know, you and I, that the most common reason people seek sex therapy is a mismatch in desire. Um, so, and much of that comes from people's understanding of their own desire in relation to their partners. So it's quite fascinating, I think. And I think one of the most common then misconceptions is that lower or higher desire is situated in either partner because I think that mismatch in desire we understand it or people generally understand it or it's kind of commonly discussed as problematic but I guess I would argue that a mismatch in desire is more normal or more likely than people being perfectly aligned. Yes, I would totally agree with you. And and of course, the research would agree with that too, that more often than not, people um, find that they and any partners that they have are rarely on the same page when it comes to um, how much sex and what kind of sex they want, at what time of day, etc. So yeah, I absolutely agree with that. And I think it is quite interesting that as you say, when people come to see us, they often have located the problem of desire not as a mismatch, but in the lower desired person. So the person that's experiencing um, lower desire at that moment in time often starts to feel like the problem. And I think that's because we live in a society where this idea of spontaneous libido that should be ever-present is so popular because we have that idea it's that person that gets named or starts to position themselves perhaps as the problem and I think that's partly our our job in some respects isn't it in the first in the first couple of sessions is helping people to understand how desire actually operates and where the problem might lie and that the problem itself might not lie within one person but between those two people in how they perceive and cultivate desire. 
And the mismatch is just a, a discrepancy or a difference. It doesn't have to be as problematic as as they think. And I think um, for me, there is always that kind of, it, it feels more commonly, I suppose, like that blame aspect is on the part that wants less sex because it is considered to be in inverted commas normal mm. to want sex. And I think we assume sexuality. This is a thing that I find myself talking about more and more at the moment is we we make assumptions about people's sexual activity and people's sexuality all the time based on kind of how they look or the length of the relationship they're in or how they dress or how they yes. act or if they seem confident or not. And therefore, this, it, it almost feels like kind of having low desire is something that people get kind of shamed for quite a lot or start to feel guilty for. And I guess understanding that desire is context dependent and our feelings are part of that context then means that if we feel negatively, for example, guilty about the fact that we aren't wanting to have sex as much as our partners, that is going to be a desire dampener. Yeah, absolutely. And so further reinforce the problem. Yeah, and then and then people find themselves in that kind of blame cycle, don't they, where one person feels frustrated and upset about um, the fact that they're feeling more like sex and the other person feels pressured and guilty, and neither of those contexts are great for fanning the flames of desire. Um, so yeah, I, I'm totally with you on that. And I think you, you mentioned something really important a second ago around the meaning that people make of um, a partner not feeling like sex as much as they'd like them to. And I think this is a really important one because as much as we assume sexuality, as you say, um, and I, I'm totally with you on that. I think there's also an opposite assumption of the meaning of sexuality and how uh, how we see it reflected in ourselves, what it means for us if a partner wants to have sex with us or not. And I think there is so much bound up in the meaning of sex for relationships that sometimes is important and matters because we know that sexual satisfaction and relationship satisfaction are highly correlated in sexual people and therefore it is important. But at the same time, so much stuff gets lumped in with sex that doesn't need to be lumped in with sex. Um, you know, like, uh, for example, that, you know, sex uh, equals intimacy. Well, of course, you can have a lot of intimacy without sex or that sex is a way to feel desired by a partner, to, to know that they're attracted to you. And of course, you can feel attractive to someone without having sex. So I think when sex becomes like the primary vehicle for communicating uh, certain aspects of the relationship, and it isn't communicated in any other way than sex, then it becomes quite crucial, doesn't it, to one person if another person suddenly doesn't want it as much. I always talk to one of the kind of first questions I actually ask people if they come for therapy is like, what does sex mean to you? And that's one of the kind of um, yes. real conversation starters for me in the therapy process because I want to know yes. what they understand by it. And, you know, it might be someone who historically... Um, a lack of sex in their relationship actually meant that their partner was having an affair. And so then for them, it's a real trigger for there to be a lack of yeah. sex and it's really meaningful and it was really painful before and they don't want to go back there. Whereas the other partner is has started taking a medication, which means that it's interfe interfering 
with their ability to function sexually in the way that they used to. So they are becoming increasingly anxious and nervous and their body is kind of working against them. And so we have all these, you know, that's two of hundreds and hundreds of unlimited examples, but it's understanding that it's not just the what of sex, but the why of sex that plays such a critical part. Yes, and, and I like to ask a question of what effect would it have on you or on your relationship if you were having more sex? And I think that question similarly gets to the nub of why does it matter? Why does it matter to you personally? Why does it matter to your psychological health? Why does it matter to the good of your relationship? And very quickly, um, a bit like with your meaning question, we get to understand, well, what is sex doing between the two of you? What's it conveying? What's it What's it about? Because it's about different things for all of us, isn't it? At different times. You know, sometimes it's stress relief. Sometimes it's to feel connected. Sometimes it's to feel wanted. Sometimes it's to feel normal. There's a ton of reasons. Well, as we know, more than 200 reasons. Mm, yeah, our favourite um, study. Why humans have <laughs> sex. <laughs> yeah, I love that research. Uh, yeah, so do I. I think that it's it's quite interesting to help people reflect on that, but also reflect on the very few reasons that we see represented in mainstream TV or the media, that really the reason that's portrayed most often on TV um, or in the media is um, the feeling of a physical urge to have sex. So really what that's talking about is, is more a physiological arousal, which we know all of us experience from time to time. And it just depends how much we're noticing that going on in our body. But that's really what you see on TV, isn't it? It's kind of this unbridled passion, this desperate lust, this physical urge. And it really doesn't represent the complexity of what often motivates humans to have sex, which is sometimes, you know, this takes us right back to the beginning, doesn't it, about what is desire. Sometimes the motivation to have sex is non-sexual. The motivation is we haven't had sex for ages and it would actually be really nice to have sex. That's my motivation, and my, my arousal, my feeling like it, is going to emerge once I follow that motivation and do something about it. And I once heard someone um, talk about it as desire being about the desire to continue. So that kind of responsive yes. desire kicking in once we start something. And that we, you know, as, as therapists, one of the things that we quite often um, recommend people is scheduling the time, scheduling the space for intimacy, for connection, for touch. So I quite often talk about kind of melting from sensuality into sexuality. That's a nice expression. I like that. I like that. It's good. I'm going to use that, Kate. (laughs) (laughs) I'm stealing that one. Okay, you can have it. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. I'll I'll credit you, obviously. Well, thanks. (laughs) Um, But I've heard you, I've heard you before say we can't force desire, but what we can do is create context. Yes within which it can happen more. And I think that's a really important thing because people get so scared of this idea of kind of like scheduling sex. And actually, what none of us as therapists do is schedule sex. Um, Yeah, terrible idea, isn't it? Yeah. (laughs) But we say, put the, prioritise the time, prioritise the space, create um, an effective space for the two of you to have each other's attention, for there to be touch, for there to be connection, for there to be a potential of multiple motivations to have a sexual experience together or a sensual experience together. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that is the important thing. And, you know, I 
quite often ask people, I'm like, okay, so would having more sex, just, you know, if we could give press a magic button, which meant that um, you guys had more sex, so you were having sex kind of three times a week, would that solve all the problems here? And the answer is almost always no, because it's not just, as we were saying, the amount of sex or the regularity of sex, which definitely not. You know, we know isn't the best measure of a sex life anyway, but it's what it conveys. Complete it's, red herring. Yeah, <laughs> complete red herring. Um, but it's, it, it's, I want to know that my partner desires me. I want to know that my partner wants me. I want to feel attractive. I want to um, feel that our relationship is as good as it always yes. was or I want to feel closeness or I want an orgasm or so we we completely understand that we have always talked about it very in a straightforward way and actually it is complicated yeah. but it doesn't have to be and this was really um one of the key motivations for me for writing mind the gap because I really saw kind of again and again when I worked with um, especially women and their partners um that sense of feeling like something was broken um, with their desire that you know the number of women who come to see people like you and I and say I just don't know what's wrong with me I felt like it at the beginning now I feel like I could take it or leave it I'd be Mm. quite happy to never have sex again it must be me they say because it's happened in every long-term relationship I've been in and I Mm. felt so um, frustrated that so much of our understanding about desire in society is not helpful for women because it doesn't reflect how women's desire and everyone's desire, but we know that, you know, this is the case more for women. It doesn't reflect how it works. And that concept of feeling like you're waiting for something that's just going to come over you and make you feel like having sex, even when you've had a really stressful day and you've got a million things on your mind and you're not that happy with your partner and you don't feel great about your body and X, Y, and Z, it's that concept that's getting in the way of most people's sex lives. And as you say, what we know about the science of women's arousal and desire is that in if you create the context, desire often follows. And it's often not there to start off with, but it's responsive and it follows. So scheduling time to see if desire can emerge, just scheduling time to connect physically. And I say physically because I don't know about you, but I feel it's really important that people know that it has to be often a physical connection. You know, being naked together, a touch, a kiss, taking the time to be physical Um, because emotional intimacy is wonderful and we know that's great for for sex and desire but you've still got to get past that hurdle of um, having some kind of physical touch to kickstart your arousal and desire for most people and so scheduling that kind of physical intimacy the irony is that if more people knew about that they would find that their desire emerges actually as often as they want it to emerge because we know that Um, desire is very uh, responsive to that kind of situation. It's just that we're not allowing those situations to emerge in our busy lives. We're waiting for desire to happen first when we should be waiting for desire to happen last. Hmm. And I think that is so critical in our understanding of 
this kind of area of sexuality because what I talk to a lot of people and I'm like okay so what happens you know when are you do you not feel like you're having sex and they're like oh well you know we go to bed in the evenings and we're kind of getting to bed and we're both in our routines and and I talk about this process of winding down mm-hmm. to get into bed in the evenings so we're kind of washing our face take off our makeup brushing our teeth kind of getting ready for bed we're in that wind mm-hmm. down and then you get into bed and it almost feels like you have to kind of instead of coming from neutral, come from minus 10 sometimes to get yes. to 10. Yes. Because um, I find that talking to people about that and everyone's like, oh yeah, well it makes a lot of sense because we're getting ready for bed and it's the end of the evening. And, and it's all very unsexy stuff, isn't it? Brushing mm. your teeth, taking your makeup <laughs> off, yeah. like, you know, getting a glass of water. It's not exactly setting the context. Mm. Well, also that, you know, so many people I speak to are like, oh, well, we're both on our phones or one of us is on our iPad or we're watching Netflix or, you know, they're distracted. And you're tired because it's the end of the day. Exactly. There's nothing to kind of latch for desire to kind of latch onto or kind of Mm -hmm. hook onto. But um, I often find that, and I have found that this phrase is coming up more and more and more, is when I'm doing it, I'm enjoying it, Mm -hmm. but it's getting it's the getting to doing it bit that I'm struggling with or it's the initiating bit that I'm struggling with. And so it's not necessarily a lack of enjoying sex that tends to be the problem. It's more the headspace aspect. And I talk about it a lot as switching off to turn on. And I think that we expect and have this expectation of and have this understanding of all this, what, you know, um, had these ideas about sex, which is it should just happen with no work, no effort, no consideration, yeah. no prioritizing. But everything else in our life, we work out, we put an effort into, we nurture, we um, think about, we might explore, you know. I mean, literally every other aspect of our lives apart from sex. And then we think that sex is just meant to kind of be a magical unicorn that happens with, with no... yes with no more effective input. And I guess I find that a real struggle, especially when talking about desire. Yeah, because I often say we wouldn't do the same with our kind of fitness and new um, exercise and overall health, would we? We wouldn't kind of eat junk food every day of the week and not exercise and then wonder why we didn't feel good about our body or didn't feel healthy, that actually we have an awareness that if you want to nurture something, if something's important to you in your work, in your friendships, in your uh, in your hobbies, whatever it might be, in your health, you kind of need to think about what you want and pay attention to it and put some effort into maintaining it. And I often think that the the tricky bit about desire, and this is why desire is so tricky, I think, is that people have the experience that they don't need to do that at the start of a relationship. And that's the problem, is that the contrast is the problem, is that we know that there's a normal change that happens about a year a year to a year and a half into a relationship. We know that spontaneous desire, that feeling like it out of the blue, tends to drop off significantly when somebody is with, you know, the same partner. And I think that contrast is the problem because people think, well, I had this before, so something has gone wrong and it's either gone wrong with the relationship or it's gone wrong within me because I'm not feeling like it. And that's the bit, isn't it, that we need to help people understand is that um, that's a normal change and that desire can represent itself differently at different stages of the relationship and that it might be that as you get to know somebody a lot better, 
as they as they become more familiar as you start to have other roles that you share with them other than as a sexual role you know as you start to have different facets to your relationship that that spontaneous desire does start to decrease and unfortunately that's that's very different to how other areas of our life operate you know we we have it and then it kind of it kind of starts to decrease a little bit and I think that's why people feel that they're the problem and I wish more people knew that they weren't the problem hence writing a book about it it's like people need to know this stuff it would be great if everyone knew this stuff if everyone knew you know what the what the science tells us about the aspects of relationships that can keep sex good for decades and decades because we know that that's possible or if everybody knew about um the kind of relationship dynamics that can get in the way of that for us or you know the way in which our concerns about our body image or as you say the fact that people aren't switching off enough from their digital life I know that's something you talk about a lot how those things can get in the way it would be great if people knew more about that and I think that we know that the brain is the biggest sexual organ you know yeah we're kind of like so focused on like what's between our legs but actually we need to think about what's between our ears and I think that reframing those ideas about sex is actually just gives people permission to start thinking about things differently, to start thinking about sex differently, because I find that the model that we have, the very kind of linear, quite, you know, very linear, very heteronormative, very kind of couple-focused model is actually really not helping Yes. a lot of people's sex lives. And so I consider one of the biggest parts of my job to be helping people to redefine sex. So moving away from the one-size-fits-all to the right-size-for-you model of yes. sex. And I guess that it's also helping people understand that desire can be responsive and not we need to get back to where we were or back to where yeah. we started or back to the honeymoon phase, you know, that famous... Um, that kind yeah. of <laughs> famous stage of relationships, but accepting that we're now in a different stage and things might be different. So we might have to work harder at some bits and that might be sex or our sexual experiences or our sex life. But the getting to know each other part and developing intimacy and closeness and trust, which we were putting so much effort into at the start, is easier f- further down the line. And I think we just don't think about it like that. Yeah, and I love your idea of kind of re- redefining sex. Um, and and for me, that's also very much about broadening our definition of what constitutes sex in a relationship. Mm. And I really wish sometimes that we could put more focus on um, less on sexual acts themselves, like penis and vagina sex or any other sexual act that we're thinking of when we often talk about sex but broadening our definition of sex to be um, the way we relate to each other as sexual partners over the course of a typical day, week or month. Um, and for me, that that's where the real gains come in of redefining sex because actually um, being a sexual couple or being a sexual throuple or whoever it is that you're with um, is much more than an act, a sexual act itself. It's in everything about the way in which you relate to each other, um, the tone of your texts, the way you look at each other, the the momentary touches when actually 
no sex can happen because there's people around or whatever it might be. And for me, it's the quality of sex outside of the bedroom, not that we want to narrow it to that, but you know what I mean? It's the quality of that that brings people most satisfaction when it changes, I think. That when we um, we help um, people get that bit back in their relationship, that kind of glance across a crowded room, that the, those kind of flirty comments, the the compliments, they're saying, you look really hot today, the passionate kisses when people leave the house rather than the peck on the lips. I find it's it's that that makes more difference to people's overall sexual and relationship satisfaction than how often they're putting in something in something else in terms of a sexual yeah. act. What do you think? I, I completely agree with you. And I was going to... Um... I was just thinking that's what you refer to as sexual currency. Yeah, and I I've I really like the concept of sexual currency because I think it's it's about the culture of our relationship, but but more than that, I think sexual currency is in itself a trigger for arousal and desire. So the more sexual currency we have, the more likely it is that we're going to feel desire. But I think it also provides a really nice what I call scaffold between the non-sexual stuff and the potential. You know, when you talked about winding down earlier, which I thought was a really nice way to describe it, the bedtime the bedtime winding down. There's something about the kind of the mode that we're in at that particular time with a partner, isn't there? And I think one of the things that, that we see a lot in our jobs, uh, I guess, is when people haven't been sexual with with somebody for a while, perhaps someone they're they're in a relationship with, it can start to feel super awkward mm. to even know how to go about making that happen. Yep. And often people say to us, actually, I do feel desire or I do feel motivated to want to feel desire, but I actually don't know how to go about even suggesting it because it feels so far from how we are together that it feels too hard to to even bring it up and I think that's where sexual currency comes in because the more the more we relate to each other as sexual partners over a typical day or week the easier it is to to scaffold between you know the non-sexual things like brushing your teeth and being able to connect and for that to prompt and kickstart arousal and desire so yeah it's something I feel I feel passionately about that it's actually probably more important than sex and inverted commas Mm. And the, the the flip side of that, I think, is that so often that it's not actually the act of sex kind of having not been there that is the trigger for people coming to therapy, for me anyway, mm-hmm. or at least in my practice. It's everything that kind of comes before and also follows it. It's the yes. pulling away from other forms of touch or the lack of knowing where to start or the feeling awkward or the breakdown of kissing or even hand-holding or that kind of yeah. anxiety that sits between people tends yeah. to be, and the I the meaning think, of it all. In the meaning of it all, exactly. It tends to be, I think, the trigger for people to come and do something about it because they're like, okay, well, we haven't had sex for three years, but actually when you talk to them, it's not the three-year... It's, it's not the lack of sex, actually. It's the how do we bridge a three-year gap? Because we both feel so awkward and uncomfortable and haven't wanted to initiate and haven't wanted to step towards each other that we need a bit of assistance with that. And I think that tends to be where something like sexual currency plays a huge role 
in no early therapy sessions are you going to say, look, just kind of go and have sex and get it done and then everything yeah. will be fine because they've built up an anxiety. We'd be out of a job then. <laughs> yeah, you, you built, they've built up an anxiety around sex, a fear around sex and uncomfortable. It's almost like um, people feel like they don't know each other as yes. a couple and so they have to get re-established and when they get re-established, yes. they feel more comfortable, more confident, more able to approach, more able to communicate and also that part of our brain that responds to anxiety that has kind of coded sex as threatening in some way for that window of time starts to also be like, okay, this isn't scary or I didn't need to be yeah. scared. And so it's a really um, cyclical process. Yeah, and it, I really like the idea that um, just as uh, as easy as a culture of being non-sexual together can creep into our relationships like any change in culture, we have the ability to um, to shift it. Mm. And that happens all the time in culture. All it takes is for people to start doing something different before that something different quickly becomes the norm. Mm. And I, I like that idea of um, people being in charge of the culture of their relationship. And I often use that to... Um, suggest that people try what I call an experiment in sexual currency overload. Mm. And I often get people to do that um, if it feels like the right time. And I think that that's a good place for them to start because obviously everyone's coming from different starting places. But the idea that you should experiment or you can experiment and really allow each other to take risks with uh, increasing sexual currency to the point where it's, you know, almost a bit ridiculous, you know, a bit of a, a bit of a joke. You can have a bit of a laugh about it. You know, like, you know, every, every couple of minutes you're thinking about what am I going to do next? What, yeah, what you're can an we overdrive. do together? But <laughs> the more, the more people um, start to do that with each other, as you say, the more that starts to become the way in which we see each other again, mm. because, our brain's really good at coding things as sexual and non-sexual. And unfortunately, you know, I wrote about this in the book, The Coolidge Effect. One of the problems of our brains is that um, we can start to associate somebody um, not as a sexual person if we stop relating to them sexually. But just as easily, we can change that culture by starting to relate to them sexually again. And then our brain codes that sees that person sees that situation as sexual and that of course is really good for our arousal and desire mm. and I think that it's such it just feels like it's such a kind of misconception that desire is something that in itself has to be fixed fixed and you know I'm kind of doing inverted commas here when it's <laughs> it's it's almost the symptom of everything else that's going on and the context and how we're feeling and you know attention intention yes. body confidence self-confidence relationship um con just context and of course we know don't we that it's not the it's not the most successful marker of a good sexual relationship having um being very interested in sex or having a similar uh, interest in sex to somebody else and actually the two things that are bigger predictors of long-term sexual satisfaction are being able to talk about sex mm. so being able to easily negotiate when somebody's totally not feeling like it at all because they've got other stuff going on and being able to find a way around that and to understand it and talk about it 
And also, you know, the one that I really like is the research that shows us that people who understand that desire ebbs and flows and that that's normal tend to have higher levels of sexual satisfaction Mm. than people who don't. So there is something very much, as you say, about understanding desire that is key to sexual satisfaction not the desire itself, mm. which I think is 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 just great to know. Yeah, I think really good to know. And you know, for me, my three key ingredients of a good sex life are curiosity, communication, and lube. And I think that their <laughs> curiosity bit is exploring. Okay, well, what makes you feel turned on? And I think also what helps to turn you on, rather than like what can I do to turn you on. So for one partner that might be, do you know what? I would just be feeling relaxed. So I'm going to have a hot shower before we get into bed or I'm just going to kind of go and have like 15 minutes by myself to kind of clear my head or I'm going to listen to some audio erotica or I'm going to listen to a piece of music or for others it might be having the lights on or having the lights off. You know, there are really simple yeah. switches that we can... Or a really good conversation yeah. for some people, isn't feeling it? Connected, a really connected yeah. conversation. Or feeling heard or listened to by their partner. Or it might be, I guess it might fe- be feeling that it's kind of like, you know, the children have gone to bed and it's kind of silence in the house and they're like, right, let's have sex now and then have dinner after <laughs> because I don't want to have sex yeah. when I'm feeling really full. You know, there are lots of things and, you know, almost endless possibilities Um, but I think that it's helping people to kind of understand that they have the ability to influence their own sexual desire. Yeah and I really like the idea of curiosity because I think it's also useful to for people to reflect um, after they've had a sexual experience that's been good and you know also obviously if it's not been so great it's good to reflect as well and to just look back on it and think what happened then and what was it about that that was good for me or perhaps wasn't so good for me? And that could even start at the stages of motivation or desire. So how was I feeling before and where did the turning point come where I suddenly thought, actually, I want more than this? Mm. You know, I, I started off not feeling that into it and then something shifted. So I think people can even do that retrospectively to to learn more about themselves, you know, to use the idea of curiosity to reflect afterwards and think, what were the, you know, if I was kind of looking at this sexual experience as a kind of a graph, what were the high points of the graph? And what does that tell me about what works for Mm. me? And what were the points that were uh, perhaps not the low points, but the points where I was less engaged? And what does that tell me? You know, was did I catch sight of a part of my body and suddenly felt distracted? Was there something that they said or did that I didn't like so mm. much but didn't voice it? I think curiosity afterwards can be can be a, a great way to learn more about our sexual likes and, and also how our desire works. Mm. And Esther Perel does an exercise, which I love, um, which is kind of finishing the sentences, I turn myself on mm. when... And I turn myself off when. And what I love is that it's not how does my partner do that for me? It's how do I do this for myself? And I think that that is a really interesting kind of path to go down. 
if people want to. Yeah, absolutely. Because we often put the responsibility for for our own desire into somebody else, don't we? Mm. And kind of wait to be turned on. And I think it is really um, um, life-affirming to know that you're kind of in charge of your own your own desire. Mm, absolutely. And that you can experiment with that on your own by seeing what happens if you fantasize, seeing what happens if you listen to audio erotica, paying attention to um, how your your mood, your your mental well-being can affect your desire, how, how your monthly cycle can affect your desire, how your physical health can, all of those things. And yeah, I really like those uh, the complete the sentence thing by Esther Perel for that reason because it's really about centering your own responsibility to to kind of notice and nurture those things and I think it's even it's quite hard to to know those things about yourself isn't it just take a little bit of introspection mm, definitely and you know we're but not with, taught to with a bit of notice mm, with a bit of notice I think it, it can be really useful mm, absolutely um, and Karen to kind of finish off this conversation which I have absolutely loved and you know I'm um, me Always, too. I find this such an interesting topic to to talk about because for me, even a you know before I kind of went into this field of work, but b across the time that I've been in this field of work, I think my ideas about all of this have completely changed. And you know, we see the research coming forward, and that's changing. And when we know that this career in this world, you know, is is all really new. Sex research is really modern. Um, I think it's such yeah. an exciting time to be Me too. able to work in this space and kind of help people navigate their sexual journeys, I suppose. Um, but I would love to know what your one piece of, there's obviously going to be a lot more than one, but um, what um, your kind of tip or piece of advice for sexual well-being or sexual wellness would be for people listening a kind of takeaway from from this conversation oh my gosh one piece that's going to be really <laughs> difficult you know me I find it really hard to narrow things down um oh I mean I guess my one my one thing if there was one thing I could get everybody to do to be able to well can I have two yeah, things you can have as many as you want <laughs> If I could get, if I could do two things, it would be learn more about sex. And I don't mean about kind of, you know, the, the kind of less usual uh, aspects of sex that, you know, 2% of the population does. I don't mean like that. I mean, the, the, the nuts and bolts of sex, mm. like how your body works, the, how, what, what bits are on your body and how they function. Um, to learn more about it, and especially for desire, because it's just so misunderstood. So that would be my first. And the second would be get practice talking about sex, because we know that the more able we feel to talk about it, and of course we're all socialised to not talk about it, which is why talking about it can be so tricky, um, the, the better sex lives we're going to have. We know that for sure that being able to talk about it, whether it's going well or whether it's not going so well, is the key to a good sex life. And so I would say practice that. Practice it with friends, practice it with casual partners, practice it with regular partners, talk about sex scenes on TV, talk about what was hot in them, talk about what you didn't like. The more you talk about it, the more you say the words, the easier it will get, the better sex life you'll have. And Karen, please tell... Um tell everyone where we can find out a bit more about you 
So um, mainly probably on Instagram, um, at The Sex Doctor is where I most often hang out. Uh, other platforms are available, <laughs> but I prefer Instagram. And um, yeah, privately um, at The Havelock Clinic, which you can see on my Instagram. Fab. And just, um, I obviously know the title of your amazing book, but just remind everyone listening what the title of that is. Yes, It is Mind the Gap, the truth about desire and how to future-proof your sex life. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Sexual Wellness Sessions. If you'd like to join us for more conversations, you can click subscribe on either Apple or Spotify podcasts. And if you have a moment, please leave us a review.